Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Thank you for coming out for this Palm Sunday, where we relive, where we remember, uh, as we enter into Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life. Sometimes Palm Sunday is referred to as Passion Sunday, because we read the whole passion, the whole story of Jesus' crucifixion, as we just did. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we gather this morning, we remember that the crowds greeted you eagerly as the coming king. And then just a few days later, many that were in that crowd and many that were in the city shouted, crucify him. Even today, Lord, we confess that there's a part about you that so attracts us and a part about you that repels us, that we're scared of. Lord, help us to understand who you really are this morning so that we will invite you with open hearts. Amen. 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 Well, a few years ago, I was teaching at a Christian conference, and I built a relationship with one of the grad students who was attending. It was a, um, she was a Muslim woman from the Middle East named Heba. And she was at the conference not because she was convinced of the Christian faith, but because she was curious. And um, you could tell there was something about the message of Jesus that had kind of wedged itself into her heart and mind. And she couldn't shake it. Maybe you're familiar with that experience. So Heba was there asking questions, and she asked me a lot of good questions throughout the conference. She especially wanted to know, why do Christians believe that Jesus had to die? You may know that in the Quran it teaches that Jesus actually wasn't crucified. What I told her was essentially this, that when it came to God's plan to heal the world, the medicine that God provided had to match the ailments of the world. So, we both agreed, both Heaven and I, that the main problem with the world, the main ailment, was sin. Was this tendency in human beings to try to position ourselves as our own God. Or as the God over others. But that's at the heart of what we call sin. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way in our Old Testament reading. He says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. Well, I told her, Jesus did the opposite. Though he was in very nature God, in his humility, he was willing to live as the servant of all men. And that's at the heart of our salvation. So Jesus flipped the script on this created world. He reversed the curse and the medicine matched the ailment. One thing that Christians have always believed about the cross of Christ is that it's kind of like God's medicine for a sin-sick world. That somehow Jesus' death is the cure for our souls. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The death of Jesus atones for the guilt of our sin and sets us on the path of transformation from the inside out. 
And we believe this not only because it was foretold by the prophet Isaiah several hundred years before it happened, but because that's what Jesus said about himself. He said he was the great physician. And he came, uh, not, you know, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He said, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right, so actually, the message of the cross has nothing to say to those who think they don't need it. To those who think, I'm good, I'm, I'm not a sinner, I don't need that. I don't need that medicine. Elsewhere, Jesus is more explicit. He said he came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus ate the Last Supper with his disciples, he explained that the bread was his body broken what? For us. That the cup was His blood poured out. What? For us. For the sins of the world. Picking up on these themes, St. Ignatius, who was a bishop in Antioch not long after the New Testament was written, around 100 AD, he famously referred to the body of Christ in Holy Communion as the medicine of immortality. Isn't that a cool phrase? the medicine that matches our ailment, heals our natures. Okay, so I've decided, for the sake of making this point clear this morning, I'm going to tell you a very embarrassing story. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So here goes. All right. A few months before uh, Carissa and I got married, I had surgery. And while I was recovering at my parents' house, Carissa very kindly would come over during the day and take care of me. And uh, like a lot of men, when they have a medical issue or even are sick in the slightest way, I was a big baby about it. <laughs> and I was whiny and I was grumpy. And there was one thing in particular that made me very grumpy. I was lying in bed in pain, mind you. And Carissa went to get medicine for me because my mom had just come back from the drugstore. And she brought me uh, pills with a cup of water, and I took them, trusting, naively it turns out, that it was the right medicine. <laughs> and then, all of a sudden, from the other room, my mom screams, Oh no! Did you give him the blue pills? <laughs> and Carissa said, Yes! And she goes, That was my estrogen! <laughs> Busting out laughing. And I remember I was so mad. I'm still mad about this. And my mom called the doctor and was like, hey, is, is, you know, I gave my son some of my estrogen. Is anything going to happen to him? And the doctor, I hear him laughing on the other end. And he's like, no, it's not going to cause any problems, but give me a call if he starts to have hot flesh. <laughs> When I think back on that story, I still get mad, even to this day. Because I was in pain, and I was given the wrong medicine. Now, what we need most when we're sick is the right medicine for our ailment. And that's what the great physician came to bring. The medicine for sin and death. How did Jesus accomplish this? How does he begin to set the story right? that went so wrong. In the end of the book, The Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam are reunited with the wizard Gandalf, whom they had seen die with their own eyes. 
uh, but who had risen from the dead. And upon seeing him for the first time, Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And of course, an artist like Tolkien knew what he was doing by posing that question. And even more so in the story of our salvation, the master artist, the sovereign maker of the world, is at work. Would you grab a Bible and turn with me to Philippians 2, 5 through 11? It's found on page 980 of your Pew Bible. This might be the most beautiful passage in all of Scripture. Because here the tragic story of humanity's fall into sin and death is effectively retold, only this time in Jesus, everything sad is coming untrue. He's flipping the script. It says in Philippians 2.6 that Jesus, though He was in the form of God, so though He was God in His very nature... He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, flipping back through our mind, who in the Old Testament counted equality with God literally a thing to be grasped? Right? This is the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember how Satan tempted Adam and Eve? He said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And they took the bait. And Adam and Eve literally counted equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the first Adam was just a man, but in his pride, he reached to take out for that which was not his. He grasped to be his own God. And the second Adam became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And his cross would become the new tree of life that becomes the tree of life for the world that we have access to through what he has done. Amen. In this great substitution and role reversal where created man becomes the judge of a willfully restrained creator. That was what was going on in the Passion reading we just read. Right? We were saying, crucify Him. We're recognizing, when we recognize that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that in His humility, He allowed Himself to be sentenced to death by His own creatures. Our willfully restrained creator took that from us. And here we reach, we reach the climax of the whole Christian story. In the words of the great hymn writer Charles Wesley, He left His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite His grace, emptied Himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. So the cross of Christ is the medicine for our ailment, the cure for sin and death. Jesus bled for Adam's helpless race. And the most amazing part of this good news is, is not just that we were rescued, but think about what it says about the nature of God. Mm -hmm. Amazing love. 
How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What does the cross of Christ communicate to the world about the nature of God? I want to linger here for a few minutes. It's difficult to overstate the significance of a passage like Philippians 2, 6 through 11, to our understanding of the nature of God and toward the, answering the question, did the earliest Christians worship Jesus as God? Sometimes hear that question come about, right? People say, well, the earliest Christians, they didn't believe that. That came a few hundred years later. But not only was this entire letter written just two or three decades after Christ's death and resurrection, but most scholars believe that this section in particular has an even earlier date. Here Paul seems to be quoting an early Christian hymn, sort of like a first century version of Amazing Grace, that he just assumed the church in Philippi would know. This is one of the greatest hits. You guys know this song. And this hymn is one of the earliest known reflections on Jesus, and it sheds light on his identity in two ways. I don't want us to miss this. So first, it teaches that Jesus existed in heaven prior to coming down to earth. Do you see that? It says that he existed in the form of God before he set aside his rightful equality with God at his incarnation. It was his own decision to come down from heaven, right? And empty himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this point is easy to skip past, but the Bible never talks this way about men. Never talks this way about human beings as existing prior to their conception on earth. On the other hand, the Bible always talks this way about Jesus Christ. As 1 Timothy 1.15 puts it, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So he was in heaven, and he made a decision, I'm going to come into the world to save sinners. Amen? So he existed in heaven before his incarnation. And secondly, the hymn clearly, clearly is a worship song to the Father and the Son. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, the angels, the archangels, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this verse, you may not know, is an undeniable reference to Isaiah 45, verses 23 to 25, in which Israel's God, Yahweh himself, says that He alone is Lord. And He says, To me alone, to myself alone, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So what we see here in Philippians 2 is a blending of Jesus' identity with the identity of the God of Israel. Here Jesus is claimed to be Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, in perhaps what is the earliest reflection on the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus' identity is already so bound up with the God of Israel that their roles and titles are used interchangeably. I want to ask this question. What, what could possibly account for this seismic shift in Paul? This first century monotheistic Jew 
What could account for this seismic shift in his theology that would cause him to speak in this radically Trinitarian way? He calls Jesus Lord. He calls the Father Lord. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 3, he uses the same Greek word kyrios for the Holy Spirit, who he said is Lord. What can account for this? I think there's really no explanation unless Paul really saw the resurrected Jesus. Unless he really met him. Because a staunch monotheist like Paul doesn't begin to understand the one true God in this Trinitarian way unless there was a radical thing that happened to him that caused him to have to sort of rearrange the theological furniture in his brain, right? This glorious truth about the resurrection of Jesus, it was like this work of art that needed to be put on a certain wall. And it's like, well, if this goes here, then everything else needs to be rearranged. seems to me that every year around Easter time, the History Channel gathers together a sampling of the world's most liberal Bible scholars and theologians. No one ever asks guys like N.T. Wright or Christopher Wright or Alistair McGrath. And this group of fringe scholars tries to convince the world that the notion of Jesus' divinity was an invention of a later generation. No one ever mentions a passage like Philippians 2, 6-11. Because what we find here is a clear and shockingly early affirmation of Jesus as God. And what a beautiful picture of God we see. Amen? We worship a God who is so loving that while we were yet sinners, He allowed Himself to be stripped and beaten, stretched out and pinned to a tree, completely vulnerable to the watching world, becoming obedient to the point of death, even shamefully dying on a cross. And the point of this passage is not that in Christ, God decided to sort of pause business as usual and do something humble and loving for once. Because in Jesus, we see the image of the invisible God. The exact representation of His being. The Word made flesh. The message of the cross is that God is humble. That God is loving in His very nature. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says that God's decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross, this decision was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. In other words, what we see in the cross is not God acting contrary to His nature. God never acts contrary to his nature. Amen? Amen. What we see in Christ is the God of love in all his glory. As we close this morning, I want to come back to this idea of Jesus' incarnation and death and how it flipped the script, how it brought us the right medicine, the cure for sin and death. Because the primary focus of the Christ hymn is actually not the divinity of Jesus, which is actually kind of incredible. That's just sort of an aside. It's like there's this implicit Trinitarian theology that they're just operating with already. 
But the primary point is to describe the lengths to which the rightful Lord of the earth would go in order to redeem fallen creation. So brothers and sisters, before we go out and, and seek to heal the world outside, we need to be reminded of our own need for the great physician. Amen? Amen. Have you accepted the cure that Christ came to bring? Have you meditated afresh on the glory of your salvation? We all, like sheep, have gone astray, the scriptures teach. Each of us has turned to our own way. We've tried to be our own shepherds, right? We've set aside His Lordship for our own Lordship. That's our substitution. C.S. Lewis said that the trick of the devil is to say, assert yourself and you'll become more like God. But in obeying Him and asserting ourselves, we actually become His slaves. That's where the world found itself before Jesus' incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, made a decision to come down from heaven in human form so that He could redeem our story, reverse the curse, and make everything sad come untrue for those who would receive the cure. And in doing so, He showed us the eternal humility and love that exists in the very heart, in the very center of God. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Mm -hmm. Amen.